Do you ever find yourself asking the questions, what is the Apocrypha? Where did it come from? Is it part of our scriptures? Can we trust it? If not, is it useful for anything? Because I do ask these questions, okay? I do. I do. So today, on this currently untitled podcast, we're going to take a dive into that. What is the Apocrypha? Not only that, but we're going to dive into a particular story, Belle and the Dragon, and receive a dramatic retelling to really understand what's going on in this wild, wild series of books. So let's just start with the basics. What is the Apocrypha? Well, it's a series of 14 books written during the approximate 400-year period between the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the first written book of the New Testament. This is where the first problem really begins to arise. These 400 years are referred to as the 400 years of silence. You see, Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, predicts at the end of his book the return of Elijah. And looking approximately 400 years later, we see that fulfilled metaphorically through the person of John the Baptist. But it's believed that between these two people, there was no new divine revelation or inspiration um, or true biblical scripture written during this time. So that's a big hit against the Apocrypha. Now, it may have some interesting historical information about those 400 years between Malachi and John, but not being divinely inspired means it doesn't stack up to the same level as our scriptures today. On the topic of divine inspiration, it's quite interesting to consider the fact that the Apocrypha not once claims to actually be divinely inspired. Wayne Jackson writes in his article on the Apocrypha, Not once is there a thus says the Lord, or language like, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, In fact, some of the documents actually confess non-inspiration. In the prologue of Ecclesiasticus, the writer states, Ye are entreated therefore to read with favor and attention, and to pardon us, if in any parts of what we have labored to interpret we may seem to fail in some of the phrases. So once again, the Apocrypha may be helpful in understanding what happened in this 400-year period, but we simply cannot put it on the same level as the scriptures to which we know are divinely inspired. Another huge problem with the Apocrypha is the fact that certain parts of it directly contradict teachings and doctrines that are in our Holy Scripture. For example, the Apocrypha teaches that people can be saved by works. If you look to Tobit 12.9, it says, For almsgiving saves from death and purges away every sin. Those who give alms will enjoy a full life. Now looking to Ephesians 2.8-9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not the results of works, so that no one may boast. So these are two pretty contradictory doctrines, and one we know is divinely inspired, and the other not so much. In addition to these contradictory teachings, there are also some historical inaccuracies throughout the books. For example, in the book of Tobit, once again, Tobit recalls multiple historical events that he was present for. The problem is the dates of these historical events. If he were to have actually been present for these, he would have had to have lived to over 200 years old. Now, that's not the biggest of problems, but the problem really arises later in the book when we read that Tobit died when he was 112 years old, so obviously something there isn't adding up. Another section that contains some historical inaccuracies is in Judith. So Judith 1.1 states it was the twelfth year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, who ruled over the Assyrians in the great city of Nineveh. But if we refer to the Bible, specifically Daniel, we read that Nebuchadnezzar wasn't the king of Assyria, but the king of Babylon. So, with its contrary doctrine and historical inaccuracies, it begins to become more clear why we've began to hesitate to pair the Apocrypha with the Bible and put it on the same level as our Holy Scripture. 
So with all this information, the question becomes, where does the Apocrypha fit in today? Although, to truly understand where it fits in today, we do need to understand some of the history of how it got into the Bible in the first place. It really all started in the 3rd century, as the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, was translated into Greek. This was known as the Septuagint. As the Septuagint was written, several books, the apocryphal books, were included in it. Later on in the 4th century, as the Greek Septuagint was translated into Latin, St. Jerome began to doubt that the books of the Apocrypha were divinely inspired. Jerome believed that because these books were not divinely inspired, they should not be included in the canon of Scripture. He believed they could be helpful to the church in reading outside of the Bible, but that they shouldn't be put on the same level as the Scriptures. Unfortunately, Jerome's doubts were ignored, and the Apocrypha continued to be printed in the Bible. It wasn't until Martin Luther that the Apocrypha was pulled out and separated from the rest of Scripture. In defense of separating the Apocrypha, Martin Luther brought up many of the facts that we talked about earlier. The lack of divine inspiration, the doctrinal contradictions, and the historical inaccuracies. He believed, much like Jerome, that the books could be helpful outside of Scripture to deepen our understanding of that 400-year period, but that they simply were not divinely inspired and could not be used at the same level as Scripture's. Moving forward from Martin Luther's translation, almost all Protestant Bibles have completely gotten rid of the Apocrypha. Although, at around the same time that Martin Luther deemed the Apocrypha not divinely inspired, the Roman Catholic Council of Trent deemed it as inspired and began to include it in all Roman Catholic Bibles. So today, you'll most commonly find that most Protestant Christian Bibles have completely removed the Apocrypha, whereas many Roman Catholic Bibles still have a number of the books included. One of the books that's still included in the Roman Catholic Bible is called Bell and the Dragon. This book is an addendum to the book of Daniel. It's a story about idols and trap doors and dragons and Habakkuk being lifted by his hair to Babylon. It's, it's a wild ride. So right now we're going to experience a dramatic retelling of this story. It's a little silly, it's a little goofy, but it's important to note that all of this is directly from the Apocrypha. Are you sitting comfortably? <laughs> Good. Let's begin. <laughs> Gather round for the story of Daniel and the priests of Bel. Our scene is set in Babylon, as Cyrus, the Persian king, succeeded to the kingdom. Daniel was in the kingdom as well and was friends with the king. The Babylonians had an idol called Bel, and every day they provided for it. 12 bushels of choice flour, 40 sheep, and 6 measures of wine. The king revered it and went every day to worship it, but Daniel worshipped his own god. So the king said to him, Why do you not worship Bel? He answered, Because I do not revere idols made with hands, but the living God who created heaven and earth and has dominion over all living creatures. So the king said to him, do you not think that Bel is a living god? Do you not see how much he eats and drinks every day? And Daniel laughed <laughs> and said, Do not be deceived, O king, for this thing is only clay inside and bronze outside, and it never ate or drank anything. Then the king was angry and called the priests of Bel and said to them, If you don't tell me who is eating these provisions, you shall die. But if you prove that Bel is eating them, Daniel shall die, because he has spoken blasphemy against Bel. Daniel said to the king, Let it be done as you have said. Now there were seventy priests of Bel beside their wives and children. So the king went with Daniel into the temple of Bel, 
The priest of Bell said, See, we are now going outside. You yourselves, O king, set out the food and prepare the wine, and shut the door and seal it with your signet. When you return in the morning, if you do not find that Bell has eaten it all, we will die. Otherwise, Daniel will, who is telling lies about us. They were unconcerned, for beneath the table they had made a hidden entrance through which they used to go in regularly and consume the provisions. After they had gone out, the king set out food for Bell. Then Daniel ordered his servants to bring ashes. And they scattered them throughout the whole temple in the presence of the king alone. Then they went out, shut the door and sealed it with the king's signet, and departed. During the night, the priests came as usual with their wives and children, and they ate and drank everything. Early in the morning, the king rose and came, and Daniel with him. The king said, Are the seals unbroken, Daniel? He answered, They are unbroken, O king. As soon as the doors were open, the king looked at the table and shouted in a loud voice, You are great, O Bel, and in you there is no deceit at all. No deceit at all. But Daniel laughed <laughs> and restrained the king from going in. Look at the floor, he said, and notice whose footprints these are. The king said, I see the footprints of men and women and children. The king was enraged, and he arrested the priests and their wives and their children. They showed him the secret doors through which they used to enter and consume what was on the table. Therefore the king put them to death and gave Bell over to Daniel, who destroyed it and its temple. The end. Bell in the Dragon, part two. Daniel kills the dragon. Now in that place there was a great dragon, which the Babylonians revered. The king said to Daniel, You cannot deny that this is a living god, so worship him. Daniel said, I worship the Lord my God, for he is the living god. But give me permission, O king, and I will kill the dragon without sword or club. The king said, I give you permission. Then Daniel took pitch, fat, and hair, and boiled them together and made cakes, which he fed to the dragon. The dragon ate them and burst open. <laughs> then Daniel said, See what you have been worshipping. When the Babylonians heard about it, they were very indignant and conspired against the king, saying, The king has become a Jew. He has destroyed Bel and killed the dragon and slaughtered the priests. Going to the king, they said, Hand Daniel over to us, or else we will kill you and your household. <laughs> the king saw that they were pressing him hard. And under compulsion, he handed Daniel over to them. The end of part two. Bell in the dragon, part three. Daniel in the lion's den. They threw Daniel into the lion's den, and he was there for six days. There were seven lions in the den, and every day they had been given two human bodies and two sheep. But now they were given nothing, so that they would devour Daniel. Now the prophet Habakkuk was in Judea. He had made a stew and had broken bread into a bowl, and he was going into the field to take it to the reapers. But the angel of the Lord said to Habakkuk, Take the food that you have to Babylon, to Daniel in the lion's den. 
Habakkuk said, My good sir, I have never seen Babylon, and I know nothing about Zedan. Then the angel of the Lord took him by the crown of his head, and carried him by his hair with the speed of the wind, and set him down in Babylon, right over the den. Then Habakkuk shouted, Daniel, Daniel, take the food that God has sent you. Daniel said, You have remembered me, O God, and have not forsaken those who love you. So Daniel got up and ate, and the angel of God immediately returned Habakkuk to his own place. On the seventh day, the king came to mourn for Daniel. When he came to the den, he looked in, and there sat Daniel. The king shouted with a loud voice, You are great, O Lord, the God of Daniel, and there is no other beside you. Then he pulled Daniel out and threw into the den those who had attempted his destruction, and they were instantly eaten before his eyes. The end. So that may have been a little ridiculous, but I would like to remind you it was all from the Apocrypha. The idols, the trap doors, the dragon, the gross cakes, Habakkuk being lifted by his head, it's all in there. But to be fair, it's one of the stranger stories from the Apocrypha. I think it's important to approach these books much like Martin Luther and Jerome did. We don't believe they're divinely inspired, and there may be some doctrinal disagreements and historical inaccuracies, but that doesn't completely invalidate every aspect of these books. Some of the books in the Apocrypha, such as the Maccabees, truly give us a great idea of what happened in this 400-year period that we really don't know a lot about from the Bible. An article on Biblica titled, Why Do Some Bibles Have a Section Called the Apocrypha?, puts it really well. It says, Since neither Jesus nor the Apostles make any reference to the Apocryphal books, most Christians have regarded their authority as secondary to that of the 39 books of the Old Testament. Yet, within these apocryphal books are passages of great piety and historical information. We should therefore approach the Apocrypha with a discerning mind and heart, and carefully discriminate between what, that which is in harmony with the essentials of the Christian faith and that which deviates from what is taught in the 66 books of the canon. We have the Lord's promise that he will lead us into the truth, and we live by that promise in everything we read. John 16.13 says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own, he will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. And that's about all I have to say about the Apocrypha. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for a dramatic retelling of the entire Book of Mormon.